some people think that you take the shot once. You just get the shot. Your doctor gives it to you, or you get it from Mexico, and you get the shot, and literally instantly you're thin. You're a Kardashian. You got a like you know tiny waist and a big butt, and you go out there and you're thin, <laughs> and you wear tight clothes and you're ready for the red carpet. And that is not what happens. This is a um, what we call a process, and. It has to work with your metabolism. Sometimes, as with my case, it has to work in conjunction with other drugs, and it takes a while. This is Fat Science, a podcast dedicated to the science of why we get fat. No diets, no agendas, just science that makes you feel better. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to replace professional medical advice. I'm Dr. Emily Cooper. I've been treating patients with metabolic issues for over 25 years. I'm on a mission to raise awareness about metabolic dysfunction and why diets don't work. Hi, I'm Andrea Taylor. I've been fat, very fat, chubby, morbidly obese, and done almost every diet ever invented. They all worked until they didn't. I've known Dr. Cooper forever, but when I became her patient and we learned metabolism was the real problem, Wow, everything changed, and I've never been healthier. And I'm Mark Wright. It's time for Fat Science. Wait, does this podcast make me look fat? Welcome to Fat Science. I'm Mark Wright, along with Andrea Taylor and Dr. Emily Cooper. It's great to see you both. Hi, good to be here. So today's episode, Understanding Metabolic Medicines. And since Andrea came from the marketing world, she came up with the catchy title, Ozempic, Manjaro, and Wegovi. Oh my! Well, because, I, I well, do love, um, you know, the little catchphrase, and I like uh, Wizard of Oz. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. This is going to be really interesting, Dr. Cooper, because it seems like everywhere we turn on television, on social media, there's a drug being marketed that says, eh, you can lose weight, and it's great for your metabolism. And so let's let's start with... Um, first of all, what the goal is in regulating our metabolisms, then we'll get into the various drugs. So why don't we start there? Well, yeah, the goal with really regulating your metabolism is to strengthen the metabolism to help it function more normally for those patients and those people who have metabolic dysfunction, um, which affects their ability to maintain a normal, quote, normal weight and appetite level. And so these medications, we don't really want to think of them as weight loss medicines, even though that's how they are actually marketed. We need to really be putting them in the context of metabolic medication, metabolism, improving medications for those who have metabolic dysfunction. Andrea, you live in Los Angeles, and it seems like everywhere you turn, you've got these drugs being marketed. What what is it like down in LA? Is everybody talking about this, these types of drugs? Yeah. I would say it comes up at least once a week in different people's conversations about, oh, you can take this magic shot and people think that you go to a doctor and they just give you a shot and you take it probably once and you lose, you know, 25, 35 pounds. They look at um, stars on the runway. They think, oh, they got the shot. They got the Ozempic, and now they're thin, and they wear a dress, and they're on the red carpet, and they look great. And it just would be great to um, 
tell people that that is not how it works. I mean, I personally have been on drugs for, I started with um, Victoza, then I went to Ozempic, now I'm on um, Manjaro for 10 years. And I am still not on the red car. Well, I'm not on the red carpet with some kind of beautiful spangly dress. I mean, although I could buy the spangly dress, but um, it takes a long time. This is a drug that works with your metabolism. So it's not going to happen overnight, depending on who you are. Um, If you have different problems, it works differently. And it's not a miracle cure. And I would love for people to know that this is not something that's a miracle. It is something that works with your metabolism. Dr. Cooper, I'd love to go back in time and start with a discussion of when insulin was discovered Mm -hmm. back in the 1920s. Was that really the first time that doctors started to understand, begin to understand the science of metabolism? Well, I think so. I mean, there was a lot leading up to that, actually, even in the 1800s. Really, if you think about Manjaro, for example, um, the first glimpse at what a drug like Manjaro could do was actually 1880. And so it's really fascinating that scientists way back then who did not have access to all the science that we have today, still could kind of surmise what was going on metabolically in the body. And they predicted that we would eventually develop medications for metabolism that resemble our body's own beneficial hormone system. And that's really the direction we're going with all of these medications. But insulin was the first one that came out in 1926 as a pharmaceutical drug. Wow. So back in the 1800s, late 1800s, what what did they do to come up with a a drug that looked and sort of acted like Manjaro today? It's amazing. They took um, the duodenal extract. So (laughs) the duodenum is part of the small intestine, the upper part of the small intestine. And they used, I think, pig uh, duodenal extract where they would grind it up and make it into an extract, gave it to humans with diabetes and saw a dramatic improvement in the diabetes. So they right away started to think, at that point, they already, a little bit later than that, they started realizing that diabetes was controlled by somehow the pancreas. And they didn't really know about insulin yet, but they surmised that this duodenal extract was working by stimulating the pancreas to release a hormone that was improving diabetes. And the crazy thing is they were correct. <laughs> so, it, it, it just is amazing to me how much they actually figured out without anywhere near the science we have today. What was the importance of the discovery of insulin when, when, that, when that was discovered and, and doctors started trying to manipulate that and understand it? Tell us the importance of that because Diabetes and prediabetes is is literally an epidemic oh, today. Oh, yeah. It, it changed everything. And it proved that using a hormone that the body produces can cure a disease or control it um, dramatically and save lives. And that's when scientists started saying to the pharmaceutical industry back in the 1920s, well, you should be able to create a similar model for treating obesity as you just did with diabetes. There has to be a hormone or something that can actually cure obesity also, the same way you've come up with this insulin for diabetes. So they actually thought that it was coming right around the corner in the early 1930s, but it took so much longer. (laughs) 
And the uh, Manjaro today, it mimics a hormone called GIP, which is produced by the duodenum. And so when they were using the duodenal extract in 1880s, that's what they were actually giving to people was GIP. And that's why it was improving their diabetes. So we have pigs. <laughs> well, <they're>, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd love, Dr. Cooper, for you to kind of explain a little bit more about how insulin works and why it's so important in the body. Well, insulin is such an important hormone and our pancreas produces insulin. And what its function is, is to match our glucose levels, which glucose is from dietary carbohydrates primarily. And the glucose circulating in our body is what we use for fuel. And so our insulin is produced by the pancreas in response to these glucose levels in order to help that glucose enter our cells and our tissues to use for energy. And so our tissues can really access the glucose in our circulation by way of insulin. Insulin helps them access it. So if they can't access that glucose, they won't take up the glucose from our bloodstream and it will build up to high levels, which is what diabetes is. And once you get those really high levels, that is not good for your blood circulation, for your nervous system, for your heart, for your kidneys, for your vision. And so it leads to all kinds of complications. So giving someone insulin, if their body can't produce insulin, is just life-saving. It reverses the diabetes and enables your tissues to take up that glucose. All right, let's jump into just really talk about the different types of metabolic medicines that are out there. Andrea, how many can you name? Let's go. <laughs> there's the Victoza, there's Manjaro, Ozempic, Wegovi, Sexy Senda, Sexy something. I And we just said it before, and I still don't remember it. Sex Senda. What is it? Saxenda, Saxenda, something. Saxenda. Oh, Saxenda. There you go. Thank you, they Dr. obviously Cooper. don't have as many brochures and commercials, <laughs> um, but they're all different ones that, um, and I'm sure there's even more than that that aren't as popular. Um, I've only had experience. Oh no, wait. What's the other Bidurian? But the Bidurian. I took that one too. Um, you know, I've had a lot of history. It's over ten. Years and of, these are diabetes of, drugs. There's also Trulicity. Oh, <clears throat> Trulicity. I took that too. Yeah. I took that too. There, there are a lot um, of others too that are not in this same category that we're describing right now. The category Andrea was listing are all considered what are called GLP-1 mimetics. Um, the Manjaro, that means they mimic our own body's GLP-1 hormone, which is from our lower gut. But the Manjaro mimics both GLP-1 and GIP from the duodenum. Mm -hmm. Two for one. The so let's break these down. The, the basic category of these drugs, Dr. Cooper, um, tell us what they are and what they do in the body. Well, these GLP-1 mimetics means they mimic our body's GLP-1 hormone from our gut. That hormone helps communicate from our, the communication from our gut to our brain when we eat that kind of shows our brain the food that we're actually consuming. And in addition to that effect, it has just enormous effects throughout the body to improve our metabolic health, both from our cardiovascular standpoint, to our kidney function, to our blood pressure. I mean, it really has 
wide ranging positive impacts throughout our body. And that's a normal hormone that our body produces. So all of these drugs in that category that we talked about sort of act that same way. Is that a fairly recent discovery in terms of these drugs being marketed to the general public now? Well, as we said, with the GIP, they discovered in 1880, and that was the last one to make it to the market in Manjaro. But for GLP-1, um, there were studies uh, definitely heavily in the 1980s. Um, they started really looking at the effects of GLP-1 and uh, one of the things that took so long for it to launch as a pharmaceutical drug was the pharmaceutical companies were trying to figure out how to make it into a pill instead of an injection because um, they felt that the injections would be too inconvenient for patients and there's logistics with the injection because most of them have to be refrigerated. So they took at least uh, a decade of a detour in just trying to make it into a pill and didn't have much success. And so then came back to the injectable forms. So the first ones were released in about 2005, actually. And at that time, that medication mimicked the Gila monster GLP-1, not the human GLP-1. And believe it or not, it, it was from the Gila monster uh, that it was like fashioned after. And it was very effective. And that was the first one on the market called Bietta. Also, Bidurian is the same medication. Oh, yeah. oh I took that too. Mm -hmm. So I think the, uh, the reason that these drugs are so popular now is that there's weight loss that happens. Uh, and it, I'm guessing that some people are being prescribed just to lose weight on these. Why, why do we lose weight when we take these drugs? Well, we also, we always talk about the term diabesity, which is kind of the combined epidemic of obesity and diabetes, type 2 diabetes. And the reason why we think of it as one entity isn't because every person has to have both diabetes or, or and obesity. It's because they share a common underlying what we call pathophysiology, meaning the, the spectrum of problems in the metabolism system are very similar in diabetes and obesity for most patients. And so even in the very beginning when they discovered these hormones, they realized that they, they have both anti-diabetes and anti-obesity impact. But the way that the pharmaceutical industry operates, it's much more difficult to get drugs approved for obesity than it is for diabetes. So these companies definitely began with the diabetes pathway. And one by one, after many years, the drugs went back to the FDA for further indications for just obesity. And most often when they go back for that second indication for obesity, the recommended dosage is much higher than it is for diabetes. Andrea, you've had some experience with these, and, and I have too. We're both patients of Dr. Cooper. What Give me a little flavor of what it was like when you started using, and these are all injectables, right? Yeah. In the beginning, I was on ones that I had to take every day, and I got to tell you, insurance-wise, even though I was on them f not for, we had to prove that I had diabetes, which I had sort of gotten on the edge of, I was more pre-diabetic, so we had to prove that I was going to be on the verge of diabetes without these drugs. And my insurance went through very different permutations of saying, well, you can have it. 
And then they would say, no, you can't have it. And I had to get them from Canada. And even getting them from Canada, honestly, it was $800 a month um, to get the drugs. And then eventually Blue Shield said, okay, we're going to approve it. And it was at that point, I think it was like maybe $100 a month. But for a long time, not approved. And for me, I made the choice to say, okay, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, And were there side effects? Yes. For uh, some of them, some of the side effects are nausea. Um, You have to be really careful of when, because it mimics sort of your feel, the the hormones telling your brain that you're really full, quick, kind of like there's a lag in time. So you have to kind of learn what that lag in time is. And it tells you that you're really full. So if you, a, a friend of mine and I who take the drug, we're like, did you go, you have to make sure that you don't go over the line. Um, because if you do go over the line, the food's going to come up. And I also have had um, a gastric sleeve, so I have a small stomach. And going over the line can happen pretty quick. So you have to be really careful. But for me personally, and everybody makes their own choices, um, the the decision to, to go on these drugs is better than the other uh, the other options, which are fatty liver, diabetes, um, and all the consequences that could come with not taking them and being uh, sick from diabetes or from any of the other uh, problems that come with obesity. And I have to say that as soon as I went on Victoza, within, I think it was like six weeks to two months, maybe, Dr. Cooper, I don't remember, my fatty liver went away. Um, my numbers for my di- my pre-diabetes even went away. Honestly, they all went away. Mm-hmm. So there are not miracles, but small, amazing, amazing things that these drugs can deal with. But you will not become a size two in a week. Well, and everyone, no, everyone is different. Matter. We have to stress. And everyone because the, for yeah, some, every for some people, they're like water. I mean, they don't do anything <laughs> for that. Yes. I've I do I've had friends nothing yeah. happened and nothing. part of that just is that we have to always look for the underlying problem. These are again not weight loss drugs that you'd give it to anyone and they're just going to lose weight because you really want to find out well why does the person have diabetes or obesity? Why mm-hmm. is that there? And is this the right way to target it? And if or is it a component of a bigger picture that we need to implement? Um, or is there a different step you need to do first with the metabolism for this medicine to work? Right. It's just way more complicated. And I think part of why yours were denied initially was that, um, and so, so many patients, um, these meds were denied even when they had diabetes in the past is because the American Diabetes Association, their guidelines for treatment steps used to be that you have to take insulin before these drugs. So right. there's something called step therapy. And we wouldn't put people on insulin when we can use these drugs. Um, so not that there's anything right. wrong with insulin, but this is a much better strategy for people that you know are candidates. But now, over the last several years now, 
um, one reason it's, it's changed, changed that the American Diabetes Association has these meds as first line. So, and also I should add, I'm on a lot of other drugs to fill some other issues as mm. well. Yeah. So it wasn't just like, oh, take this one thing and it'll fix everything. I mean, there's a lot of other stuff yeah. going on. <laughs> I'm on a similar sort of path as you, Andrea. I was pre-diabetic, started with Victoza and then a couple of others. I'm on Ozempic now. And uh, yeah, same thing. The the, the fatty liver and, and all that stuff uh, all went away with me. Dr. Cooper, explain if you would, these aren't appetite-suppressing drugs, even though sometimes they make people feel like they're more satiated. It's not about eating less, is it, when you take these drugs? Well, no. And I think that's one of the big problems with the way they're marketed and prescribed, that yes, the, the symptoms of appetite dysregulation will calm down. So if somebody ha is always hungry or preoccupied with food or never feeling satisfied, and when I say that, I mean the brain signals, it's the brain is never saying, okay, I had enough, I'm satisfied those symptoms will calm down and go away. And for people who aren't used to that, it can really throw them off and it can make it so that they forget to eat. So the important thing is to continue to eat on a regular basis, regardless of those effects, um, because otherwise you, you're just basically on a diet with an injection. And then once you do that, you're long-term chances of impairing your metabolism are just really high. And that weight that you may lose in the short term will come back just like it does with any diet. So yeah, so it's not uh, the best way to use these medications is to not use them in conjunction with a diet. And unfortunately, the most common way the medicines are used is with a diet. Well, because obesity is such an epidemic in this country, as well as pre-diabetes, how come insurance companies and doctors aren't all on the same bandwagon prescribing these drugs because obesity is linked to so many other diseases. Well, um, I think everything comes down to cost, um, unfortunately, because hmm. right now the pharmaceutical companies and the insurance companies are not playing nice together. And that to me is the biggest frustration I have as a clinician. I don't know why uh, this is all happening. And I, I just really feel like both of those entities could come to the table and negotiate better pricing and better coverage. But I think it's not just the insurance companies and it's not just the pharmaceutical companies, but I think those two together really hold the power to make something change to improve the access to care. But I think the access is really blocked by just the cost because if you try to prescribe something that is a low cost, and we'll see that soon because in 2024, um, liraglutide, which is Victoza and Sexenda, same exact medicine, um, that is going generic in 2024. And there are, as far as I know, three generic manufacturers that will be competing. So as soon as that becomes generic and the pricing is good, the insurance companies will yeah. be approving it. Now- and they'll, they'll jump, jump on, on it. And now they don't approve the same exact drug because you have to go through all these hoops. But so I think it's really the cost that's holding everything back. Then there's the stigma where doctors, it, well, now they're starting to adopt this, let's give, let's offer someone this medicine, but it's often with, 
well, if you've suffered enough, maybe you deserve a prescription <laughs> for this medicine. Have you, you know, starved yourself enough? Have you exercised enough? It's always kind of that mentality. And then if you do have a prescription, it's supposed to be that you also are on some kind of deprivation diet and exercising while you're taking the medicine, which as we said, isn't the best way to use it. So, but doctors are now starting to prescribe, but look, these meds started coming out in 2005. This is now almost two decades later that suddenly people think these are new. And Oh, everybody thinks they're right. brand new. But it's just the acceptance in our society because of weight stigma, diabetes stigma, and those diseases being things that doctors and our society expect patients to take care of on their own. That's exciting that the patent's going to expire on on that drug in 2024. Yeah. That could be a real game changer. It could. It? And it's important to realize that because these drugs have come out first as diabetes drugs, but the exact same drug then went for another FDA indication for obesity, it's important to realize these are the same medicines. So liraglutide is the chemical name of both Victoza and Sixenda. Those are the identical meds. And um, semaglutide is the chemical name for Ozempic, Wegovi, and there is a pill form, Ribelsis. But all three of those meds are the same drug, but they're marketed mm. differently. Yeah. Wow. That's a high stakes <laughs> you know, money, money it, game when you start yes. to look at the... There's really no incentive when you think about drug companies, insurance companies, neither has an, an incentive to to offer low cost um, medication to people because they're making so much money on it right now. Yeah. Um, that was just a little editorial from uh, Mark, right? <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. So Dr. Cooper, let's talk about, are there any other categories of metabolic medications that we should talk about before we wrap yes, up? Yes, there really are. Um, there's, you know, science goes back again, decades showing that many medications that are just been in our generic medication, um, uh, toolkit have been effective in treating metabolic dysfunction. And so some of those medicines are things that have been used to treat migraine headaches in the past or combination. You may have heard of a medicine called Contrave, which is a combination of Wellbutrin and another medicine called Naltrexone. And the science behind some of these and how they work and where they work in the metabolic pathway has been known also for, gosh, uh, at least 15 years. And so there's a lot of tools that we do have where um, we can address different types of dysfunction that are occurring in a patient with diabetes. And I think the important thing, again, is try to find out what's the root problem, if you can identify the imbalances hmm. and then target those specifically, because it may not be appropriate to have one person take one thing and everyone else take the same thing. And when you hear, when you hear patients say, or someone say, well, this worked for me, so it'll probably work for you. That's just so not true because that's not true. Each person is an individual and even within the same family, the treatments are different. So I think looking at it more scientifically rather than a doctor with a prescription pad and a pen and a diet, I mean, I think we need to get away from that. And start looking in a much more sophisticated way at these tools that we have in the pharmaceutical arena. So that's interesting. I take naltrexone, which is, I guess, typically a drug used for substance use disorder. But in my case, 
why, why do I take naltrexone, Dr. Cooper, and what, what's it doing in, in my metabolism? Well, naltrexone targets a very specific part of the metabolic pathway. It's called the POMC pathway, which is actually in your pituitary gland. And sometimes there are bottlenecks in this whole metabolic pathway and in the brain area, which is the hypothalamus and the pituitary, and then there's receptors throughout the brain that regulate our body weight and our appetite. There can be bottlenecks and hangups and obstructions. And so these tools are used to alleviate some of those obstructions that we see in there based on lab testing. And in your case, the naltrexone was a good candidate for one of those kinds of bottlenecks that we saw in that pathway. It also does help correct hypoglycemia if you have low blood sugar reactions. And so we found that to be helpful as well. It's like sometimes you have to jam a signal. <laughs> yeah. You can't let the signal go. You got to jam it up. <laughs> or redirect it or redirect it. But that answer that kind of made my eyes glaze over and my head hurt for a minute was it's just proof, though, Dr. Cooper, that when people hear that a certain drug has benefits for your metabolism, people are like, oh, I got to go to my doctor and have them prescribe that for me. But no. you, what I've learned from being your patient for 10 years is that this is a very complicated, delicate um, dance that all these drugs and all these hormones in your brain and your body, it's it's just a really complicated loop that that you can't just like have an armchair MD, uh, you know, prescribe stuff for, right? Well, and I think it changes yeah. over time. Yes, it does. It yeah, it's not the same. Right. It's not the same all the time. Like your body also is, your brain is very smart. <laughs> and like where that naltrexone may work for a while, then your brain may go, you know what? I know that you're doing that. And now I'm going to like get over it. <laughs> well, yeah. And I think it's, if we had, to be honest, if we had the right medications, say we have, I mean, what we have today, people think of it as a miracle and it is, but it still is not good enough. Um, <laughs> I feel it's still, there's still a, good percentage of people that these tools that we have available are not enough for them. And the science can lead us to a strategy, I think, that eventually could be so effective that you really wouldn't need to understand the metabolism <laughs> that much to have most of your patients benefit um, because they would have a broader effect and a more um, specific effect metabolically that is going to benefit almost every type of metabolic dysfunction, but we're not there yet. So it's still an art of trying to uncover what is really the core issues that we're dealing with and how those are barriers and we have to address those. And as Andrea said, they change and they they, it, you know, as you keep doing the monitoring and you do the follow-up lab work, you see, okay, now we're at this next stage. So now we need to adjust these medications and switch around this protocol. And it's not so much that your body figures out a way around it. It's just that it's like peeling an onion when you're dealing with the metabolism. It's layers and layers of dysfunction. And what you see at the forefront is what you deal with now. As that corrects, you see underneath, oh, there's something else that we now need to address. We're changing direction, as Andrea said, and we're going to be targeting that. So it's it's kind of a fun process, I think, both for the patient and the provider because it's rewarding because you're 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 making progress as you're doing this. It's not as though you have to wait forever to see the progress. The progress is happening as you're doing it. 
And people say, this takes a long time. And I think, well, time is time. I mean, you would be spending this time anyway, but instead, as Andrea was saying, you would have at this point, worse fatty liver, diabetes, all of these things. So why not spend the time, you know, taking care of your metabolism? I must've had a really big onion. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And if you think about it, you know, your body has been doing this for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. And it's It's kind of take a long time to unpeel, unpeel. Dr. Cooper, are you confident that we're going to see some really big breakthroughs in metabolic drugs in the next 10, 20 years? Yes, definitely. Yes. And even sooner, um, I think within the next five years, some of the way that we're looking at things now, we'll see just even more effective pharmaceutical treatment. But I think if you're giving it 10 to 20 years, it will be a completely different picture. And um, yeah, I think we'll be looking at it a lot more like the hormone replacement model um, instead of how we look at it now. So just like people with thyroid problems take a thyroid medicine, it'll be similar to that where they take a hormone cocktail or um, you know, something that's even more effective that has maybe only a couple of components of a very effective type of protocol. And so I, I think it's, it's, you know, I think we're definitely on the cusp. It takes a long time. And I'd say that back in 2005, the company that came out first with the GLP-1 was very enlightened. And it was a small company, very enlightened, and they had this vision um, of which direction we needed to go with these biologic agents that mimic our own healthy hormones. And they were just too small to pull it off. And the larger companies that bought them out didn't get it at first. And so it took them probably about 10 years to wake up to what this smaller company was saying and to now get on board with going that direction. And now all the major companies are, are going that way. So it's the same way that the scientists from 1928 and 1930 wanted us to go. And uh, this little company in 2005 wanted to go. And now we are headed that direction. So it takes a while, but I think things are promising and hopeful. Andrea Taylor, Dr. Emily Cooper, thank you so much. This has it's been It's been fun. great. Thanks. And that's Fat Science for this week. No diets, no agendas, just science that makes you feel better. I'm Mark Wright. Thanks for listening to Fat Science with Dr. Emily Cooper, a Work P2P production. New episodes drop every Monday. If you've enjoyed the conversation, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. This production is for informational purposes only and is not intended to replace professional medical advice. Join us next week for another episode dedicated to the science of why we get fat. No diets, no agendas, just science that makes you feel better.